What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 41 of the Afros and Knives podcast, the interview series featuring Black women working in food and beverage, wine, hospitality, food justice and food education, agriculture, food media, food science, and food technology. I am your host, Tiffany Rosier, and in this episode, I'm chatting with Bree Sherman. You know her as the voice and creative spirit behind Ancestors in Alcohol and Bree Artisan Goods, which she is selling on Etsy, so we'll make sure you visit her Etsy shop. Just think of her brand as a blend of alcohol reviews, black ancestry, and pantry treats. Um, I love talking to anybody about ancestry, roots, personal history, and genealogy. So I had a fantastic time speaking with Bree. And I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as well. This episode is brought to you by Global Cutlery USA, the generosity of and the generosity of the Afros and Ives Patreon community. Be sure you become a part of the Afros and Ives Collective, powered by Mighty Networks, and sign up for the weekly newsletter on AfrosandEyes.com. And now here is my conversation with Bree. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for hopping on. Anytime, girl. Yeah, it's been one of them. It's like February is long. I don't mind, you know, Black History Month being this long, but the rest of it <laughs> is real extra for me. I'm just like, what are we doing? The whole 2020, 2021, and I'm pretty sure 2022 is just all jumbled up together. It's it's just like, okay, we're just going to live this as a single year, call it a day. Because I just, this is, yeah, I just, mm. okay. Because I got on, I think, Twitter this morning and I was like looking through and I'm just like, <laughs> I don't think I have the mental capacity for any of this. Because even like good news or better news for me is like, this is still too taxing to process. I don't, yeah, I don't have the bandwidth look for any of this right now I don't think any of us do no and I just yeah, like, and there was a point where I was sleeping okay and then all of a sudden and this, this insomnia started to creep in and I used to battle with insomnia I've battled with insomnia since like seventh grade and there have been years where I've lost like three or four days at a time what? To where I might have slept maybe an hour and a half over a course of like 72 hours no. And most people would never know. Like, I didn't have, like, the bags under my eyes. I, You know, I di- it didn't affect me as heavily as it would somebody else. And then I had gone to, I got a sleep study. Because after a while, I was like, I, I don't think this is, any of this is healthy. It's not. So we sh- it's not. And I'm like, so we should be checking in on this. So I went to go see, I went to d- and did a sleep study. And the doctor came back and he was like, well, I have some good news and I have some bad news. <laughs> the bad news is you, there's nothing wrong with you. I was like, how is that bad? He's like, because most what? times can't sleep you need a solution mm-hmm. he was like so you don't have sleep apnea you don't have any type of like restless leg syndrome like I didn't have any of the normal sleep challenges or sleep disorders that usually keep people awake there's nothing to like medicate or there's no therapies for you because there's nothing wrong with you that doesn't even make any sense Hold on. So I was like, okay. I was like, he's like, however, I did do some research because it was just, he's like, your case is a little unique. He was like, you finally fell asleep and it took, he's like, it does take you a good long while to fall asleep, fall asleep. I'm like, well, that much I do know. You did get through like three or four cycles of like REM and deep sleep and all the other things. So he's like, you did cycle in and out a few times. And then I could tell when you were ready to wake up because you had kind of cycled through the last bit and then woke up. And he was like, so you get about four to five hours solid like that you know your body's actually going through all the cycles properly and I'm like okay he was like so I've done some research there's some research in Utah that's happening right now apparently on short what they call short sleepers mm-hmm. and apparently it's people who, whose bodies can fully repair and rest at five out five to six hours a night so basically you're like a superhero is what <laughs> well I guess there's it's a weird they said it's a it's a it's genetic so like there's part, members of your family who will share the same trait because like my younger brother is a short sleeper my mom probably is my grandmother was and they were like you you know because you're told you need to get eight to ten hours of sleep a night you get stressed because you're not and that makes this even harder because you're trying to fit into a specific sleep mold he was like what i would suggest he was like here he gave me all the the documentation for the research he was like contact the doctor who's doing the research i think they paused the research because of funding but you know reach out to him see if he can give you any more information he's like the other thing you can do is put yourself on a schedule for a little while and see how you do he was like so you know if you get your five hours but like decide when you fall asleep so you know when you'll wake up so i started doing 2 a.m to 7 a.m every day 
2 a.m. Mm-hmm. 2 a.m. So because oh I goodness. and because at on at hour five, I literally wake up. So like now when I go to sleep five hours later, I know I'm waking up. So I knew like insomnia was creeping in because the other, the other thing with short sleepers is you don't like nod off in the middle of the day. You don't really do naps. And I knew like at some point in the last couple of weeks, I had fallen asleep in the middle of the day, which is super rare for me unless I'm sick. And I'm like, not even PMS sleep. And, you know, sometimes that'll take you all the way down. You just be knocked out. I don't even have that. So at that point, I was like, when I knew I woke up at some point and the sun was still up, I was like, okay, there is some sleep deprivation happening somewhere. And so I'm just kind of been like, okay, so why am I not sleeping? So Lord knows, oh, I'd be smudging the room and talking to the ancestors like y'all gonna have to come on with something because... And put me to sleep. And put me in <laughs> these five to, hours. Like, it ain't just, a lot. But I need just all put five me to of sleep. these. I don't care what y'all got to do, but just get me to sleep. I won't I'm ask like, any questions. Girl. Nothing. Nothing. Put me to sleep. So, so that yeah, is so crazy. It's bananas. And I think that's like, it's, and I can feel it. Last week was when I really started to feel it affect me. And now this week, it's when I'm, I'm seeing like the, the external effects of it like forgetting things and missing things that I typically don't miss and that kind of stuff and I'm just like okay it's really starting to like follow me into my waking life and like the things I need to be doing there and it's just everything moves in slow motion because you're like Uh, because you're tired uh, you're exhausted and so I'm just kind of like okay we're gonna have to do something and I feel like me. melatonin I feel like wouldn't work because then you're gonna wake up and then you're gonna still be drowsy because I mean, I've been using, I've been using like an, it was an adrenal and cortisol support supplement, which is like a herbal blend. And then I also have just a restful, calm type herbal blend as well. So I've been using those two things. So, you know, you're talking about the kava, you're talking about the valerian root, you're talking about all of those things. So I've been taking those and they usually like, I can, it can, it drops my level, my stress levels down. It brings like my brain activity down a little bit, but just not enough to reach sleep so i can lay here and just be like basically you're it's like when you smoke weed you just you just chill it like, but okay. you don't go to sleep nope don't go to sleep so because at some point i was doing like cbd mm-hmm. oil and so i'm like i'm calm and relaxed but just it doesn't turn yeah, into sleep. sleep so i was like well if, i'm like well if the ancestors have something to say if somebody would like to speak up about something i need to talk y'all want to talk about or go ahead because Basically, because y'all keeping me up. Because you keeping me up. We're not gonna Ooh. do this. We're not gonna do this through the rest of the week. So anyway, that's part of that's part of my challenge right now. But I can't even imagine. I digress. Um, so what I typically do at the top of the of every podcast, every episode, is I have my guests introduce themselves. I am a huge proponent of people speaking their own names because the names have a lot of power. Yes, they do. And so I, you know, I, oh, and I also, you know, that whole I don't know how to pronounce a black person's name thing. We're going to get rid of that in 2021. So I always have people pronounce their own names. How? What do you want to be called? Which is a really different thing than what you were named sometimes too. So mm-hmm. so that, and then, you know, give us just a little bit of background, a little history, a little journey information. Like where'd you start? How'd you end up where you are, where you are now and all of that. And usually there's a, a jewel or a nugget in there that I'll grab onto. And then we can kind of just go off into a conversation, you know, cause I love a good, I, I like organic conversations. I think. Yes just how black women roll we don't do you know i try to tell people like this is not super structured i don't have like a huge list of questions sometimes i'll get you know i'll use the questions in my like sample question list because Mm -hmm. you know if if i feel like a guest might be struggling they've already looked at those questions and are kind of prepared and starts to kind of lubricate the conversation a little bit but otherwise i we have never had any issues with the black people on this on this podcast we love finding our way into conversation Yes. Right. So yeah. So I will give you space for that. While you do that, you'll see me disappear for a second because I need to plug this Mac in. Because every okay. time I forget to plug it in. <laughs> so you just keep going, and then I'll be back with you. And thank the Lord for post editing, where you don't have to see me leave and get the plug. Okay. My name is Brianna Sherman, but I go by Bree more than likely. And I am the creator of Ancestors and Alcohol, which is basically, well, it started off as a YouTube channel, but I'm lazy. So more than likely, I am making videos on my Instagram 
But basically, it's just my journey through my ancestry and my genealogy. And then it's also me trying Black-owned alcohol. I realized a few years ago that there wasn't a lot of Black-owned alcohol. And I was tired of spending my money on white people. So I decided to try out the Black-owned alcohol. But then I ran into some delays because I live in Alabama. And they don't sell a lot of Black-owned alcohol in Alabama. And they don't ship alcohol to Alabama. So you write about that. It just turned into me whenever I go somewhere, getting a bottle and then trying it when I get home or just talking about it. And then as far as my ancestry, I've always been into genealogy. I've always been into trying to figure out where I come from, where my grandparents come from. And so I just kind of dove a little deeper and... It just turned into me doing interviews with the elders of my family or the elders in the community where my grandparents are from, my parents. I always tell people, when you start your genealogy journey, start with the people around you. You don't need to be going back all the way to 1865, right when slavery stopped. You need to start with the people in your house and then you work your way back. So that's just kind of what I do. I just... I'm always doing genealogy and I'm always Mm. drinking alcohol. Yes, ma'am. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. That tells the people they are not exclusive activities. You can do these together separately and part time and it's all right either way. Exactly. For your genealogy journey, where did you start that? Because I have been on mine probably since my grandmother passed because she created, she started her family tree because she wanted to piece together her parentage at that point like she her mother had died when she was really young and her father died when she was four and so they moved they kind of shipped her from her home county which was Macon Georgia and and sent her to Jacksonville Florida to other relatives really yeah so she doesn't really she never had a really really a connection because her mother died when she was probably just she was just too young to even remember it so she didn't even know what her grandmother, her mother looked like. Wow. So she was in her like 50s. So she was piecing together a family tree. So I kind of picked up her trail mm-hmm. and then jumped on like Ancestry.com and did the whole thing there. But I mean, I'm sure as you know, like if you don't start with where you are, it's infinitely harder because of how records are kept. And if you don't have some financial resources to bring in, sometimes you need a genealogist. Sometimes you need, you know, a librarian to kind of come in and help you like piece this together. And even then, it's a guessing game. Like, you're just trying to get as close as possible to the correct information. So where did you start your journey? Like, who were were the, you know, outside of the people? Once you got through the people in your house or in your closest proximity, what was kind of your next move? So I had a cousin at the time. I started, I am a Pisces, so I'd be all over the place. I started (laughs) really back in, like, 2000 and maybe, like, 11. Okay, okay. I had a cousin who was interested in it as well. And she had a little more resources than I did. So we would like work together. So that was 2011. All right. Then I stopped. (laughs) And then maybe like 2015, I was like, ooh, I'm going to go back into my genealogy, my family tree. Sounds about right. Picked it back up and then started learning more about people. I started with my parents. And then I reached out to both of my grandmothers. So both of my grandfathers are dead, but my grandmothers are still alive. My paternal grandfather, I knew him. He died when I was like 22, 23. My maternal grandfather, he died when my mom was eight. Oh, wow. So yeah, my mom doesn't have a lot of, she remembers him, but she didn't really know too much of her family after my grandfather died. So a lot of that was like talking to my grandmother being like, okay, so where is he from? What are his siblings name? What are his parents names? And Mm. my grandma's 86 years old. She remembers, but you know, that was a long time ago. He died in 1965. So wow. once I got some names from her and I started with family search since it was free, I was like, you know, I don't want to go ahead and pay for Ancestry because I'm flaky and I don't want to waste my money. Look, if you ain't going to revisit it, it's like, exactly. I will be back for eight months. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I'm not paying for it. So family search for me was a great way for me to get started and dive in without having to pay money. But you get a lot of the same information 
that you get on Ancestry. So I started on there and then I started getting names. I, I would go with like each sibling and then I would just get further and further till I wound up like with my generation. Once I hit my generation, okay, I would go on Facebook, type in their name, be like, hmm, this might look like I'm related to them. And then I would reach out to them. Yeah. And then after I reach out, they'd be like, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so. They know mm. all the family history. And so over, I guess, really over the past four years, that's what I've been doing. Like I've been contacting people, reaching out. And then I do like interviews. I'll call them, set up like my microphone on my laptop, ask them some questions, kind of like what you do. Let them just talk, run their mouth. Okay. And then I'll go back and I listen to their stories, take notes and stuff like that, and just remember things about them and about what they've told me. It's kind of like an ongoing thing. I try to dedicate a certain amount of time each week to it because Family Search always has new information that they're plugging in. So last week you could have been working on your great aunt, and then this week they finally put your great aunt's children on there. And mm. then you just keep doing it. And then I finally, my parents brought me the ancestry test, the ancestry DNA test. Yeah. 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 Two years ago for my birthday. And so that's really helped me reach out to a lot of different people, find new family members, get their stories. And that's really all for me. Genealogy is, is me just trying to connect myself to my ancestors, to the elders and learn about the land that I come from and mm. the people that I come from. My father's from Bucksport, South Carolina. Okay. Super small. Only 839 people live there. Everybody's basically related. And my mother is from Harlem. So two wow. totally different. Yeah, two yeah. totally different places. They're both in the Air Force and they met. Okay. So, but I, for me, I'm born, I was born in Philadelphia, but raised in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I That's am- wild a Southerner, like at heart. Yeah, so yeah. I, I connect more to my family down in South Carolina and my great grandfather, all of them are from North Carolina, the Carolinas. That's, that's me yeah, all day. Yeah. And I think it's important for black people to figure out their genealogy. And even if they don't go as far as some people do, I've made it back to the 1860s and you know, okay, that's where you hit the brick wall. Yeah, because we weren't listed on the census anywhere unless you have right. like a family Bible or you just have somebody who knows something about it. But I think it's important that black people figure out like where you come from or even ask like your like your grandmother, your grandmother did. She wanted to know just the basic basic family members. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially if you don't have any connection to your parents. Exactly. And the family you are connected to, you feel like an outsider because that I mean, I was just such a huge part of her experience is that she just was never she never felt really connected to her blood relatives. And it was like, I mean, that's really hard because you, your identity is so tied to that, that if yeah. you don't feel like you are part of that people, then it's kind of like, OK, so who do I belong to? And then you and spend a lot of your life creating important. it. Yep. You, you spend a lot, of life, a lot of your life making it up or creating it. Mm hmm from bits and pieces. And so like she thought, I guess the family mythology was that her mother was an indigenous woman. So she was like Hopi and mm. like the Hopi people essentially have never really moved from like the Northern rim of the Grand Canyon. They have been there all this time. They really were one of the only few indigenous people groups that were not like ousted and removed from that land. And so I don't know where that mythology came from, though. And I don't think and I think that was part of her search or her questions that she needed answered. She when she finally did get a picture of her mother and there's like two pictures of this woman that exist. And to look at her, I'm like, I can see some of my cousins and stuff in her face, but I don't see my grandmother in her mm. face. So I'm always like, OK, this is interesting. And then her father, I don't know if she has any pictures of her father. I don't think they uncovered any, but he because most of my family somehow converges in Philadelphia as well. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of that. And yes. so her father actually died in like a car accident in Philadelphia. Oh, but Lord. so like the thread is so weird because it's either like on my mom's side, it's primarily Macon, Georgia, like Macon County in Georgia or Jacksonville. And then on my dad's side of the family, they were actually more Virginia Maryland, D.C., 
Philadelphia. And so what both sides of her family, both sides of my family end up in Philadelphia at some point. So it's just kind of like a central space. So I guess whenever that, you know, during that, like the black migration, both sides of my family ended and, you know, kind of moved in those circles and moved that direction. It has, because once I got onto Ancestry and kind of dropped all that tree a family tree info in i did the the ancestry dna test mm-hmm. you know even during the time where everybody thought that the police would take your dna and drop it at crime scenes because <laughs> oh, yeah. they don't understand how science works but yeah. i was just like y'all really because your life is so interested and the police want to frame you for a crime or the or the government is just out to get you and it's like you know the audacity of you Forget thinking your life is that interesting. That's what I'm saying. Forget about the government. Think about the cop down the street who might shoot you. Like, it's like, um, and I guess for me, it was always like, so are we so arrogant to believe that the, the, the government believes our lives are so valuable as an individual that you doing the things that your life is popping off so much that they like, you know, we just going to frame them for a major crime. <laughs> it's like, nah, kids. Cause we just, we just a young Malcolm X out here. We young Asadas, you like, know, they I just, am, girl, I'm like, I am sure they are not concerned about your job at Target. And so I'm going to need you to relax. See? Just all of that shit. You should calm down about your life. But I was like, I did the DNA test and it's been interesting to watch it because they, update it pretty frequently because as they get they more do. DNA tests in different in different areas, you kind of get more and more accuracy. Mm-hmm. And so that did help quite a bit to pinpoint a couple of things because there's a tremendous amount of activity in the Carolinas in general within the slave trade. And I think people like, you know, one of the first slave revolts were, was in that area. Yep. People forget that that was kind of like the major hub for a lot of that initial activity. It wasn't until much later that you start moving up the coast Exactly. We found slaves being dropped further up the coast. And so the Carolinas were just really like the hotbed for that. And so I think most people will find that their ancestry kind of starts, that trail kind of starts in the Carolinas and in Virginia's and then moves their way like north or west. And so in that Western migration is always really interesting to me because it's just like when you think about how far west people migrated and you know i started all the way to california it's crazy that's crazy you didn't even know anything was really out there nope at the time you just kept going until you ran out of land apparently Mm -hmm. and there was one point i was doing some i was writing an article for something and it was about kind of like the history of black people in arizona because right now if you go to arizona you don't really see like the population of black folks isn't huge it doesn't make like this huge impact or footprint and i mean they're there but you got to look you sure you got to look you got to look hard so it was that idea of like okay so how long have black people been in arizona and you know it's so the fact that black people our presence goes so far back in Arizona and people are like oh so you guys were here well before just about anybody else and I'm just like yeah but isn't that the general story about black people that's that we that's was here thing. first like we've always on. been everywhere and of course if they had to admit it it would just throw <laughs> would all the white people all off. the things off <laughs> if they would just be like oh the blasphemy I cannot I believe just- I mean, I was talking about this with my sister yesterday and I'm just like, so what would, you know, like we've been talking since last summer or last spring, really, about the, you know, I, people have used different phrases for it, reckoning and the uprisings and stuff. And for me, I've kind of just kind of tie, called it the age of truth because mm-hmm. you, you're getting the truth and what's happening is you're getting an option of how to engage with it. Exactly. And we're seeing those who are fully embracing it. And those who are like, nope, I'm going to stick with the the rivers and lakes I'm used to and just, you know, live with my delusion at this point. But I'm like, we're kind of an age of truth. And what I've seen happen is that we are getting to a place where we have to, it's kind of reaching that fever pitch where it's like, okay, you've got the group who's like, we need to dismantle these systems, they're damaging, and we need to like do away with them and start all over again. And I find that to be an admirable goal. However, if you have no logistics, It's just destruction for destruction's sake. You cannot, it's like if you remove capitalism, you need to have something in its place. Not because we've seen it work with the healthcare system. Well, we need to get rid of the the previous healthcare system we were using. And we've replaced it with the Affordable Care Act, which admittedly, I mean, even President Obama was like, this is not perfect, but it's a start. And everyone's been scared to start. And I'm like, so that's the point. Okay, where do you start? So the start is not going to be perfect, but his whole point was I'm not going to, I'm not leaving it here for you not to do anything with it. 
I'm leaving, I'm it, leaving here it here for you to keep doing to keep doing something. And so in that example, it's kind of like, OK, so if we dismantle the healthcare system to replace it with something that's equitable for everybody and advantageous for everybody, what does that look like? Who's in charge? How is it administered? How is it managed? How do we oversee it so that it doesn't like become what it is now and slowly creep into this space of a lack of representation? Like all the things we fell into, because I don't, I think certain systems, not all, but certain systems, I believe were started with the best intentions. But the minute you let capitalist energy kind of roam free and unchecked, because I believe things should be profitable in order for businesses to help and serve their communities. They must be profitable they within must. the system that we've built, period. So I believe capitalism, when it's checked and managed properly, can work to your advantage. I don't believe it's inherently evil. Capitalism is a, is kind of an entity in and of itself. It doesn't have a pulse or a personality. It's, it's like money. It's just a tool. And so all tools, unchecked hammers can be damaging if you use them against a skull. They can also be useful if you use them to build a house. So it's like, I feel exactly. like capitalism kind of works in that same way. And I think people don't understand that everybody just wants to, you have the Get rid of the hierarchy. (laughs) Get rid of capitalism. And it's like, okay, but who's about to be in control? Because we all know for a fact that the extremists who want to abolish, you know, the police system and the government and everything like that, their plan that they have living in the United States that we live in now, your plan's not going to work. I mean, have you seen these crazy white people? I just... That's the scariest thing for me. When they ran up in the Capitol, I said, you know what? I don't care about the white people that's in the Capitol. I care about Billy Joe Bob, who lives down the street from me in Alabama, who is watching the Capitol thugs, as you know, attack it and nothing happened to them. So what do you think is going to happen to Billy Joe and his friends? They're going to say, well, they didn't get prosecuted. Let me go ahead and go lynch these Negroes up the road that live down the street from me. And for me, that was... That was nerve wracking for me because I'm thinking about all the Billy Joe Bobs that live in every community, in every city, every state. And so it's like if you want to abolish the police and you want to dismantle the government and how we operate now, you need to have a plan that will include everybody. Everybody. Because we've also seen I love to argue with black people when they're like. Their favorite thing is, well, let's just get our own. Okay, people, let's look at history. When we have had our own, all of the Black communities that we have always have, what do they do? They kill us and they burn shit and they bomb shit. I I just never understand. And people always want to look at Tulsa and I'm like, okay, well, what about Wilmington? What about Goldsboro, Florida? Like there's so so many, many. so many. (laughs) And people are like, that happened? And I'm I'm like, like, yes, it happened. I mean, you demolished Seneca Hill just and replaced it with Central Park. You're literally walking through Central Park, playing soccer and on on top of people's graves, on top of people's former homes, in places where people were subjugated and forced out of their homes. That's a whole ass thing that actually happened. Exactly. People just don't realize it. And a lot of people don't care. They're like, well, that's in the past, but history repeats itself. We've seen it happen over and over and over again. We live in white America. It doesn't doesn't matter. In a state of, of war. All the tactics that for me, what like a lot of your systemic racism boils down to is these are war tactics. Yep. You are an enemy to be conquered. And so they have managed to systemically do it. They can either starve you out, ruin your water supply. Mm -hmm. They have managed to incarcerate people. They like it's like all but if you look at the acts of war and the art of war, a lot of those things are just war tactics. They are constantly at battle with you. I'm like, if you were still enslaved, they wouldn't be at war with you because you wouldn't be an enemy. But now that you are a free person, they are always going to find a way. To make sure that we're three steps behind, always. Exactly. And I just, I mean, you. I remember, I can't remember what I was watching. It was a documentary and it was talking about like what the value of the slave trade was economically. And, you know, if someone comes to you and tells you that we need you to voluntarily give up a $6 billion industry because it's morally right, 
Does that sound like something they do or volunteer? No. <laughs> they don't do that now. No, it's not. It's not happening. It's, it's not happening. It's not. It's not in their moral code to do so. I mean, it's specific. If it was a, if it was a six thousand dollar industry, you might have been able to talk them into it. It wasn't but very lucrative. Six, no. But six billion dollars? Never. It would never happen. And and then on top of the money aspect, the fact that they don't even respect us as a people, they see us as animals. Animals. And, and I know people want to think that that's changed. They honestly do. They want to, well, we're people now. And I'm like, they Tiffany, don't see you as a person. Lord, This Jesus. is why the black body can be disposed of with, with callous and disregard because they, they don't see you as an actual whole ass human being. At all. And they never, I, I always tell people, I don't, I don't dislike white people. Well, no. But, no, I don't really like them too much. But look, I try to tell people because they're like, oh, you shouldn't be like that. And I say on any day, I don't care on any day if a white person has to make a choice. I know there's some out there that be like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to die for them. But at the end <laughs> they of the never day, been pushed. they ain't never been pushed. Exactly. <laughs> at the end of the day, the day they yeah. are going for themselves. It, yeah. They are going to I mean, it's called self-preservation and Period. they know. They they know that they can play that race. You have the poorest, you have the poorest of the poor white person, but at the end of the day, they still know I'm white, so I'm over you. You know, when I tell people like, look, slavery indoctrinated everybody, not just the slaves. Everybody. So if we're all running on this premise, like we cannot separate the system of racism from white people as well. Like white, like, Racism affects them just as deeply and destructively as it affects us. Our, the effects on us are more external. It doesn't destroy us from within. It is more internalized for them. It's the, it's the idea that they live in a delusion almost all the time. Every like, day. can you imagine that level of psychosis? Look, let's, I'm like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be real, real transparent for a minute. I will say the last two weeks I've been watching a lot of true crime, which is typically not my thing. Really? It really isn't. I started with like Hulu has that series on extreme beliefs and cults. Mm -hmm. I started there because I'm I'm, I'm always about like, what does group think is real interesting to me? Like the psychology of like group thinking in that way. So I started with that. I found my way into this true crime business. And as I'm watching, you know, the trials and tribulations, of all these serial killers and crazy people. And you're just like, okay, there's no black people in this list. First of all, second of all, the delusion is what always intrigues me. There's a level of delusion that you're just like, always. You can't medicate it. You know, essentially they just shoot, they put them down like a like a, a a maim animal. There's no repairing that because the amount because it's like the programming we've dropped on everybody. It just went too far with that one person. Always. So they self destructed. But the programming is in all of them. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer was the last one I watched. And I remember because I always think about like how old I was when, when a lot of these serial killers were active. So Jeffrey Dahmer was active from like the summer I was born until the summer right before I was in 10th grade. Mm-hmm. He was active for that long. That's a very the, long time. Girl. And the first person he killed was 18. He was 18 himself. See? No. Wild. And his whole thing was like the police, re- the police recordings. He his big goal was to be able to control somebody without their consent. That's what he wanted. What I automatically think about is a slave master. <laughs> Girl, I was that's, like, can you think about the psychosis? That's, that's I all I like, think about. Because he, the first three, ki- the first three men, because he, he, I guess he had been struggling with his identity. He was like, I am a, I, he's like, I know, because at the time, of course, the phrasing was homosexual. So he's like, I know I'm a homosexual, but I know like the neighborhood I live in, the community I live in, that's not something you can do. So he decided to hide all those tendencies into like a murderous rage instead okay so all of his victims were men all of his victims were gay men Mm -hmm. and that's like these are things they don't really talk about when you talk about jeffrey dahmer like they don't talk about the victimology things that i noted that the first three of his victims were all in his community in ohio or in idaho no it was no it was ohio and they were all white men 
one was a hitchhiker then like usually men that he met in like clubs they were all strangers they were never people he knew and then he moved to this predominantly black poor neighborhood see so you know the victimology changed exactly so now he spent so he because in total he admitted to killing 17 people in that time period if the first three were white men the balance so this man managed to murder 14 gay black men in this poor black neighborhood and nobody cares like nobody cared for nobody one nobody cares care. that you're black nobody cares that you're a man and they damn sure don't care that, you're, care gay. that you're gay so he was because at one point what he was doing he was he was murdering them because he couldn't get control of them the first guy he attempted to do that to was this whack this, this young black man he wanted to take pictures of him that was his Mm-hmm. that was his angle hey can i take some photos of you i'm a photographer so on and so forth then he would drug them and try to gain control of them that way and when the he gained control of them like what is it that he wanted them to do like he wanted essentially a live sex doll he wanted to be able to just subjugate them sexually anytime in any way he wanted to that was what he wanted that control for the first guy he, he he didn't work because he he kept his wits about him and managed to get out mm-hmm. so and the thing with jeffrey Dahmer is he learned each time he failed the next few he managed successfully to at least get them drugged enough but nobody ever surrendered to the the, the fantasy for him so he would kill them and then he got to this place where he was beheading people and this is when you got oh, the see. body parts in the freezers and all that weird shit. And then there was this one point where he's turned this corner and he thought he's going to try to do some science experiments to see if he could mentally get them to, I mean, be physically alive, but mentally, but brain dead. So he would capture someone, drill a hole in their brain and then inject it with acid. So he killed two or three people that way, realized that that didn't work. So he let go of that experiment. So he just kept going. The only person who was not a black man at that time was this 14 year old Vietnamese baby. And of course, it has to be another person of color. So this child, he actually managed to get out of the apartment. He was completely nude, completely beat up and bloody. And it was a car full of young black girls who were driving past the apartment complex that he had lived in and saw this baby run out. And so the child who saw him was seven, she was 17 years old, saw this baby running with no clothes on, stumbling around. So she stops, they stop the car, they go get him. They ask him what's going on. He can't speak, of course. And so they call the police. Because he's been drugged. Now. Now we can bring the current policing practices into focus. Mm-hmm. So we're talking 1990 at this point. They call the police. They report it. The police show up. Jeffrey Dahmer pops up, talks the police. Talk One white man talking to another white man convinces the police that this is not a problem. This is my boyfriend and he's just drunk and out of control. I'm like, he's a- what? A 14-year-old. They didn't ask for the child's name. They didn't ask. They didn't confirm how old he was. They literally sent him back into that apartment with Jeffrey Dahmer. They never went to Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment to check anything, to check on what the neighbors were saying or what the girls were saying that they saw. Nothing. So they leave. The young lady goes home. She's completely distraught, tells her mom. Her mom calls the police station, talks to the, the, the officer who came out to the call. He's like, no, it's not. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it was just, it's a boyfriend-boyfriend thing. Don't worry about it. There's nothing wrong. And the lady was like, so that, that wasn't a child? Basically. I believe that, that child was 14 years old. No, 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 it wasn't a child. They could have caught Jeffrey Dahmer then. Yep. So he murders three more people. How did he get caught? He got caught because Jeffrey Dahmer was ready to get caught. He was just tired of covering his tracks. So the final black man that he tried to victimize was the one that got him caught. And so when they finally caught up with them and started and the story starts to unfold and they find out that that 14 year old was 14 and he had beheaded him and put his head in this in the freezer and they got that story out. So they fire the two police officers that responded to that call. That's it. Those two police officers got rehired. One is currently a police chief in a neighboring suburb. Watching the watching the true crime stuff has been like really interesting to see the components that of policing we're dealing with now and the opponents the components of race that they conveniently eliminate from these stories always always because the victimology it's like it's so important to realize that in this within the story of this man 
are 17 or 13 black lives or 14 black lives that are lost that no that one, nobody cared about that still doesn't exactly because this Cause is my even, first time hearing this girl because even in the as i'm watching the documentary at no point does the guy doing the voiceover or anybody mention that this white man and the, the guy who was the the neighbors that he had in the apartment complex he lived in the, it was this black man and his wife who lived across from him and the black guy was like i never really thought about it like i never it never struck me as unusual he's like but now in hindsight i now that i think about it he was the only single white man living in our entire community and that's creepy probably he wasn't your typical because you know some white people do live in black neighborhoods because they're yeah. poor but he doesn't even sound like he fit the bill and the no. criteria of a poor white, white. male yeah. that lives and most poor white people that live in the hood they have spouses or they have children yeah and that's why he, i think he pointed out that he was single because that's mm -hmm. what was so unusual about it. he was single and white and living yep. in that neighborhood. And that's not something you do if you're white and you're single. No. I mean, and one of the ways he ended up getting caught was first you had the black guy who managed to get out. And then apparently Jeffrey was trying to figure out how to get more bodies buried quicker so he could like continue with more volume. So he what? bought a, a barrel. He bought this really large barrel from a local hardware store and an acid. So he started putting these bodies in acid instead. And what was happening was the smell started to creep into everybody's apartment. And if you know nothing about black people, we don't do odor. No. Nope. So the odor started to creep all. into his next door neighbor's homes. And they started to be like, okay, see, you know what? You was all right, white man living across <laughs> the hall. But now but my now house stinks. So he, they went across the hall to see what was going on. He wasn't home at the time. And that's when they discovered that he had body parts and things like that. And so the young man who had gotten away from his apartment had reported that. And then now you had the neighbors reporting it too. So the police finally show up and unearth all of this villainy and evil sitting in this man's house. So Jeffrey shows back up and he just casually walks back in as like, well, I guess I'm caught now. And he didn't fight it at all. And when he gave his apology and it's, Ooh, I, you know, and I girl, and this was y'all, this was not where this podcast was supposed to go, but <laughs> this is how, this is how black people roll. So I'm intrigued. <laughs> she's like, well, wait, a this is what's been happening. I've been telling people, they're like, well, hold on, wait a minute. So they show the scenes from his trial. And of course you can always, you know, they have them sit for like victim statements. And now that you see that stone in your gut, that starts to form when you have to watch yet another black woman confront the person who has taken again a life that they carried in their own womb. And so you watch this parade of black women fill the courtroom and then line up for these victim statements and just, and you're sitting there watching it like. And I bet oh, he was oh. just sitting there like next. He gave it one of these. And his like his father, they interviewed his father a lot. And his dad was just like, because he had, because Jeffrey had been arrested before. Mm -hmm. And being white, he got out on good behavior because they assumed, well, he's white. He's not going to murder nobody else because he got in trouble for, I want to say possession or something like that. Mm -hmm. I served like a whole 48 hours. And so oh, wow. at that Tough. point, his dad was just like, huh, something's going on with him. Something's not right. They at this point didn't realize that they had he had murdered some child and dismembered his body and scattered it around their property. Oh. So when they finally found out what was going on with him, because Jeffrey actually was arrested, had gone, had done a, a, a longer stint in prison and got out and just started all over again. And so it was just like, they thought like, okay, well, if you let him out of jail, if you let him out and his dad wrote the, to the judge on that case that put, I think he got put away for five years and he ended up only doing like 18 months. So when the judge, when he was up for probation, the judge was just, he, his dad wrote to the judge and was like, my son needs help. He need, he, he should not leave jail without psychiatric treatment, something wrong mm -hmm. with him. So his, his dad had expressed a problem and they just didn't listen. They did nothing with that. They let the psycho out. And so when his father is in the courtroom now, mm -hmm. looking at his son and then looking at his the victims, like having to sit through and hear all of these women talk about what you've stolen from them. And his father was like, I would have reacted the same way these women have reacted. He's like, I don't, he's like, I told them nothing. my son needed help and they never helped him. 
now he's seeing his son. Of course, he I think he ended up doing a life sentence. He did nine life sentences for the state of Ohio and mm-hmm. then another three for the first the his home state where he did his first those first three murders so essentially he was never going to get out and and as we all know in 1991 at some point while he was in prison he was beaten to death so he never served his full term and i remember being in coming out of school and reading that in the newspaper basically when you go i mean what happens so now his father of course is like that you know all of this could, he's like, I, he, we probably could have saved at least 16 lives yeah. if anybody bothered to listen to me. Because he didn't nobody even want ever to... wants to listen. You have yep. the clues that are there. Most parents know, unless they're oblivious to life, but you have a parent that's telling you like, hey, oh yeah, just get him some help. And I think that's a real issue in the prison system. Oh yeah. They just are throwing people in jail. And a lot of these people have mental illnesses and you are not helping them. You're not doing anything for them. It's a reflection of like, of current policing. Mm-hmm. Instead of sending a police officer out to a call that requires a mental health professional, like, but you're doing the same thing once they're incarcerated. Exactly. Because, of course, incarceration is yet again, a, a, it's it's invaded by capitalism. It's like, well, we can make money off of the bodies that we've jailed. We don't need to help them anyway. Oh, yeah, let's give them a program and stuff like that. And, you know, half of the less than half of the people who go through the programs, once they get out, yeah, they're fine. But the other the other ones are back in jail because it's like exactly what can you do? You get out of jail, you can't get a job because they don't hire felons. You can't exactly. get a house because they're not giving a house or a loan to a felon. To a felon, yep. There's nothing you can do as a felon. You have to get very, very lucky and hope that somebody wants to give you a chance. And even then, some of those people who give you a chance, it's still like, okay, well, I'm going to give you this chance. But if you yeah. even mess up once, that's it it's really like okay so they're incarcerated for life whether they're exactly. located in a jail or a correctional facility or not they are now forever incarcerated and you're just like mm-hmm. when will we have new like you know and i i appreciated certain states restoring voters rights and stuff like that you know it's a start but it's like there's a such a like and to go back to that point in the conversation we were talking about how it's an act of war a sadder example is the scenes in, if anyone's ever seen Les Mis, the main character essentially has done time. And because it's a French novel, it, you know, doing time at that point was doing some time. Like his, you know, his, it was, it was a labor camp. Once they got out or released from at least the labor camp, they still were on probation, which means they had to carry around this yellow sheet of paper that told everybody that I've done time in the labor camp and I've committed a crime. And his crime was stealing a loaf of bread for his niece who was starving to death. And this is France right before the French Revolution. And so I'm I'm thinking about that and like what he had to do in order to change his fate essentially was become a completely different person. And it was a priest in the very beginning of his story who gave him a nut. He gave him some like gold candlesticks and some other things he could exchange for money. And it was like, so he gave him capital in order to reinvent himself so that he could become someone else and rebuild his life. And it's like thinking about that analogy in where we live right now and what we do with people who have done time, the exercise of restoring a life to them and what does that look like because you know you, the united states is great at spending money at nothing that matters and because people are like well, we need money for that i'm like okay so why don't we take money from the foolishness over here and rededicate it over here exactly we got fools trying to go to mars i'm like but y'all asses have destroyed the planet so how about you not go to a new planet and jack that up you're looking exactly. for new places to colonize that's what that is and that's the thing everybody can't even go to mars Thank you. You ain't taking buses to Mars. I'm like, so what you did was you call it, it. Isn't it typical colonizer behavior? You go to a place, you strip all its resources and you move on to the next place. So you've come to Earth, you've stripped all its resources, including the people. And now you want to go to another planet and do what? Do the I'm same like, shit. So you want to colonize the entire universe now and just strip all the Basically, basically jumping the from level. planet to planet. The planet levels. Just- I'm like, you know who does that? Parasites do that. They do. 
can y'all not have like parasitic personalities here? Like, can we not do this? But that's this? the thing. They, they do. They just, they are their own. They're their own people. They are just their own <laughs> y'all people. Was, y'all really some new, that's some new stuff for me. I'm like, I don't even, how do you, I, it's like, and back to bring this home a little bit to circle back around to that conversation about ancestry and the fact that an act of war essentially is to break your relationship with your history is is a huge one and it's like so they weaponized that and it's like okay so we can break them from their language their religion their you know, their, their families customs, their families their people groups their communities their you know all of those things and reinsert what we want that programming to be essentially. And so like all I can ever ask now is that if our ancestry was so valuable that you had to literally break us from it, like you had to almost, you had to so violently remove us from it. A, what don't you want us to know? Because even now, the way you've rebuilt history, the way you've rewritten it. The way that these children, that you have these kids now that think slavery was made up, they will look you dead in your face and say slavery was fake. You're like, oh, it wasn't. Okay, so. But like you say, it's a part of that programming. It's part of the programming. And I'm like, so my question is, what about y'all's ancestors then? Because if this is who you all are, Mm -hmm. I mean, how, okay, the picture is we're immigrants. We all came here from another land to get, you know, to either have religious freedom or better opportunities. So they paint whiteness as this kind of we're all immigrants and we all came here from someplace else and yep these kids eat that up and then you eat have it these, up <laughs> they have these young parents who don't yep. care about teaching their children about their ancestry or teaching their children about slavery and so it's just it just turns into I don't even know what it turns. It just turns into this ignorant bliss. It really does. That's what that is. Because at some point you're like, if you don't teach about slavery being real, then the thing that you can win is this argument that our ancestors weren't slaveholders. Because that's what you're trying to, that's what you're trying to win here. Not that slavery, because if slavery could exist and your ancestors not have participated, slavery would exist. Because it helps the narrative that black people need all of our help. You know what I mean? It helps the narrative of like, see, this is, you know, they're never going to be much better than this because, you know, they were at a disadvantage because of slavery. Like the, the, the narrative would help them. But unfortunately, they can't divorce themselves from it. They cannot. So you have to throw the whole thing away. And that's what they do, which is so crazy to me, because the same kids who say slavery isn't real will sit there and tell you, well, I feel bad for those Holocaust survivors. And I'm like, are you serious? But you don't believe what we went through, but you can have sympathy for the Holocaust survivors. Like you still have people today that pick, like my dad just told me the other day, he was like, yeah, I had to pick cotton sometimes. My grandmother wouldn't let me go to the rice fields, but I could go to the cotton field and just, you know, work there, the tobacco fields and things like that. And I'm like, my dad is probably, I think like 68. And my grandmother, it's like the the disconnect of we are not so far removed away from, from slavery. That's like you're, the, that's... you're only like a few generations away from slavery. It's like you can count on one hand exactly. how many generations away from slavery you are. And it's just like, why and how can you not believe this? But it's like what you said, that was part of their plan. I mean, you have like the Willie Lynches of the world who are like, you you separate the man, you separate the woman. That's part of the issue now because you can't even trace back. Like looking on the census records, you're like, okay is this my cousin? Is this my aunt? Is this my uncle? And then on top of that, the last names, you don't even know your last names. You have people who their slave name was Lewis, but then when they decided slavery was over, they wanted to change it. They changed their last name to Jackson. So then you have a whole nother group of people that you don't even know, or you, you take your DNA thing. And I ran into this a lot with my Mm -hmm. ancestry DNA. I would reach out to people and they would be like, oh, that's on my dad's side. I know nothing about my dad's side of the family. And I'm just wow. like, 
why did you take the ancestry test? That's what I'm asking. But then I have right. to realize my mom's like, people, you know, just want to know what part of Africa they're from. And I'm like, but what about to what your end? uncle? Yeah, and exactly. Like, what to about what your end? grandmother? What about the tangible people that you can actually reach to me it's it's just also for a society and I feel like at that point ancestry had blew up and it was like oh I'm from Nigeria oh I'm right this I'm that and it's like but are you really because you don't know anything about that culture like you're you're from America like this this is your culture And now we are taking a brief pause to thank Global Cutler USA for sponsoring this episode of the Afros and Knives podcast. Many people have rediscovered their kitchens over the last year, and some have even rekindled their love for cooking. I hope this is a trend that grows up to become the new normal. Cooking at home can be amazing if you come to your cutting board with curiosity and no apologies, if your pantry and your fridge are well stocked, And if you have a sharp, balanced knife at the ready, like an 8-inch Classic Chef knife by Global Cutlery, made of Cremova 8 stainless steel, Global Cutlery has been expertly handcrafting knives inspired by the traditions of Japanese sword making and only using the finest raw materials available. They have been doing this work for over 30 years, and it shows. The knives are for both the home and the commercial cook, and each knife has the signature global edge, and it stays sharper longer. And like the samurai swords before them, each knife is carefully weighted to ensure the perfect balance in your hands. So to purchase your own knife and upgrade that knife game, I'm sure after a year you're ready to uh, make a few replacements. Visit the Global Cutlery website, globalcutleryusa.com, or visit your local kitchen supply store like Sir Latab or Williams-Sonoma. Cooking is a practice and a craft, and every practitioner needs the right tools to produce the beautiful results that they want. That's something I've been kind of turning over a lot mentally is like this idea that Black Americans are unique in the way that Mm -hmm. we are the only ones that exist. You know what I mean? Like there are are no other Black Americans and we have a u- very unique history because there's su- there was such a large number of I mean you've got hundreds of years with a disconnect so you have to rebuild your culture rebuild your language rebuild yep. your customs like you've re- you've literally re- you've kickstarted or restarted an entire culture based on memories and then you're thinking about memories that are colored by trauma and pain and so those memories aren't perfectly clear memories either. And so, and then the further away you get from that particular starting point, the more you lose. So even some of the native tongues that came, once you started to learn English in order to survive, not because you wanted to learn English, you start to lose your native tongue. So it's not like you, it's not like someone who immigrates here where they keep their native language and they take on English. No, we're beating that out of you you're not going to be bilingual. So this idea that the United States does not have an official language, but they also discourage people from learning more than one language, that is definitely the arm of slavery reaching very far into the future. Because it's like, well, no, if you know more than one language, there's power there. You you can now speak to us and speak to each other, and we won't know what you're saying. We are left out of the conversation. And that's what they wanted to do. You annihilate someone's native language. Now it's this kind of romantic notion to learn more than to be to be bilingual or trilingual or whatever. And you're just like, when I showed up here, I spoke more than one language. And now you don't want you didn't you didn't want me to speak more than language. I mean, more than one language. You didn't want me to speak with my native tongue, mainly because you couldn't understand what the hell I was saying. That's it. And you were nervous that there would be a revolt if you couldn't understand exactly what I what was saying were, exactly. and I what I was doing. And I also think for them, it was the fact that we had our own and they just couldn't fathom that we had our own. We didn't need you. We didn't need you. We were fine by ourselves and we would have still been fine by ourselves, but you guys were lazy and you didn't know how to do anything. You didn't know how to build your own stuff. You didn't know how to cook. You didn't know how to sew. You didn't know how to do You didn't even know how to take care of your own children. And you brought us over here 
But then on top of that, you brought us over here and you had so much disgust for us, but then you wanted to be with us, but in in private, only in private, you could have me and God forbid the white women. Oh my God. Oh no. But then you laying with the slave men at night, but then lying and hollering rape. Hello. And and that's, that's in something that's, that's on a totally different that's a whole new thing. That's that, a whole that's, new level of thinking. <laughs> like, I told my white coworker this the other day. I told her, I said, white women are the most dangerous people in the world. 